welcome to ePush Files, the audio archive for honors history students at Boston Spa High School. For today's file, I'll be sharing a program posted by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History as part of their Advanced Placement History Test Prep Series. This program focuses on Time Period 1, covering 1491 to 1607. For a direct link to the presentation and source citations, please visit the show notes. everyone. Welcome, 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 and happy Saturday. I'm so glad to see so many of you here today with us. Thank you for spending your weekend with us. Um, again, my name's Cassidy. Um, I'm uh, assisting Miss Z with the class this semester. Um, since registration is closing after today's class, we wanted to take a couple minutes right at the top of class to just kind of go over some basic kind of course parameters. So everyone's on the same page. So if you're new to class, um, please take a listen. Um, we won't be reviewing this after today, although this information is on the course webpage. So as far as how this class works, um, every Saturday, we're gonna gather here together for an hour. There's gonna be 45 minutes of lecture followed by 15 minutes of Q&A. Class is gonna wrap up by 1 p.m. every Saturday. Um, last week, we just kind of went over the general components of the exam. We didn't cover any content, but starting today and then every Saturday going forward, we're gonna be looking at a different period of the APUSH exam. There is no homework for this class outside of watching the upcoming period video, video on the GLI AP US History Study Guide. At the end of each class, there's gonna be a brief attendance quiz to confirm that you viewed the class. Um, you're gonna be brought to it automatically when the webinar ends, but um, we're also gonna be posting a link to it in the chat, and it'll also be posted on the course webpage. Um, as far as a certificate of completion, it is kind of incremental throughout the course of the semester. So you get a certificate for every class you attend there isn't like one big certificate at the end. Um, so if you want a certificate of attendance, take the quiz. Um, we do have a course webpage. Um, my colleague is gonna drop a link to that in the chat. That has some frequently asked questions about this class, but every week after class, we're also gonna include a recording of the lecture, as well as additional resources that were shared in the chat, as well as the attendance quiz link. Our video team was a little backed up this last week because of the holiday, so they haven't posted last week's recording yet, and I do apologize for that, but they're going to put it up in the next couple days, along with the recording of this class. As far as some check parameters, Sarah, if you want to flip to the next slide. Uh, if you want to ask a question, please only use the Q&A feature, which is on the bottom toolbar on the bottom of your screen. The chat um, can get really crazy. Um, there's a lot of people in this class, so the best way to ask a question is through the Q&A. Um, we do recommend you view in full screen so you can see uh, Mrs. Z and the presentation at the same time. We are going to open up the chat periodically um, for you to respond in. If you want your response to go to just us, you can use the little drop down menu and uh, select to just panelists. But if you want your answer to go to panelists and attendees, you can select that too. Um, we are going to be monitoring the chat, so please keep it professional, keep it appropriate, keep it on topic. Um, and then uh, lastly, uh, please make sure that you uh, have the correct name in place. So you can click on the participants tab and uh, write your first name in there. Um, any links that Mrs. Z has in her presentation, you won't be able to click on on the screen, but we'll share those in the chat. So I hope you all have a great class and uh, take it away, Sarah. Right. Thank you, Cassidy. Hi. So first, before we even get started, I thought it would be helpful just to see what brings you here today. So we're going to start off with a quick poll. Here it is. Just trying to gauge like, you know, what, what you're here for. So take a second and go ahead and give me your answer. All right, I see most of you here because you're currently enrolled in an A-Push class. That's kind of what I figured, but there are a few people out there that are just thinking about it and also just love history. And some of you have other reasons, which is also cool. So, all right, um, let me get out of this here. There, so here's just a little bit about me. Um, so there's me, obviously. I am a 1999 graduate of Miami University in Ohio. And I have my master's in history from Cleveland State University. I've been teaching 21 years and 13 of those I've been spent teaching a push. Um, started my career near Cincinnati on the west side of Cincinnati at Oak Hills High School, go Highlanders. And I have been a Rocky River Pirates ever since. 
So I was the Gilded Women Ohio Teacher of the Year and very honored to be the 2017 National History Teacher of the Year. Um, also a James Madison Fellow, member of the iCivics Educator Team, um, and recently was named to the team, the top fellowship, uh, Transatlantic Outreach, TOP, to Germany, which we were supposed to go last summer and very much hoping we'll be able to go this summer as of course all of us collectively had our plans for last summer put on hold. Um, I love teaching APUSH. I'm excited to be here and um, have um, can't wait. So let's get into it. We're gonna start today with period one. We are getting into content here. So the first thing I always like to do is just get us thinking. I've got a question for you in the chat box. So just so I can kind of see what topic do you feel really strongly on from period one? And if you're not feeling strong on anything, you could say that, that's fine. But I would think at this point, all of your teachers have covered period one. Otherwise, they're a little behind, um, unless you have a different setup, like maybe you're a different semesters, trimesters. So let's see what we've got here in the chat. New and old world, Colombian exchange. There we go. Ooh, American Revolution's actually a little bit later than period one. I see a lot of Colombian exchange. Ooh, encomienda, we're gonna talk about that. Slavery, yep, yep, yep. Middle passage. Treatment and interaction with Native Americans, Native American societies. Uh, what else do we have here? Disease, yeah. Encomienda, Colombian exchange, good. Okay, so you got a little bit of background. Ooh, Bacon's Reminding, that's a good one, but that's next period. Uh, period one, and we'll talk about these bookend dates here. Period one is, I think more world history, honestly, for my students, they, they always seem a little more familiar with what they did in world history. What topics are you a little nervous about from period one? Like you feel like you just need a little bit more. Let me see what you say here. So hopefully I can tailor that in our Q&A later. All right. All of it. I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> Everything, okay, okay. I see a lot of people go, I just need, period one is tough. I think period one is hard because it's, um, a lot of it is not recorded or not recorded from the point of view of the people that we're trying to learn from, right? So that's something that I think is key to notice about period one and period one is 1491 to 1607. So this is pretty early as far as American history is concerned. And we will, we will go over as much as we can, okay? Um, this is of course the best we can do in one hour. This is not a substitute for everything your teacher is doing, but hopefully I can kind of put your mind at ease a little bit and just go over some of the key things. Again, I've been teaching APUSH for 13 years, so I, I know the topics that tend to come up on the national test and we'll make sure we hit those really well here. So let's start off with the bookend dates. And I had a lot of people asking questions, my students do as well, when I first used the term bookend dates. APUSH is divided into nine different periods. So period one is approximately 5% of the exam and period nine is about 5% of the exam. So 90% of the exam is gonna be periods two through eight. So I always tell my students, don't stress too much about one and nine. They're gonna be on there. We need to make sure we know how they're gonna be asking these questions, what kinds of topics we're gonna to see, but um, they're not as highly emphasized as other periods. So let that reassure you if you are sitting here going, I don't remember anything. So 1491, why do you think, let's throw this in the chat here. Why do you think they picked this particular bookend date, especially timely for this past week, right? Why would they start this course in 1491? Let's see what you got. Right before Columbus came. Yep. Very, very good. Excellent. So by starting at the year before, what the College Board is really saying is, we need to recognize, we need to examine what things were like in this hemisphere before Columbus came. That's the key there. That's why they don't start it in 1492 or three, right? They're saying, we need to look at what's happening here before pre-Columbian societies. So that's where we start. How about why 1607? Let's see what we know about this. There's a reason. That's not, that's not an arbitrary date. 
<gasps> Nicole got it right out of the gate. Nice job. Yep, this is settlement of Jamestown. First permanent English settlements in this hemisphere. Although we should say not their first attempt. And we should also say not the first permanent European settlement. Those of you in Florida, you know, St. Augustine was settled in 1565. Um, and boy, Florida historians really want to make sure you know that. I have some funny stories about that. Yeah, they get real fired up when you talk about first permanent settlements. They're like, oh, St. Augustine, wait, wait, us, right? So yeah, Florida, I see you. I see you. Okay, this is what we've got here, these bookend dates. So we're looking at the period one starts right before Columbus arrives. We also know he's not the first European to come in this hemisphere, but we'll talk about why his voyage is more significant as far as this particular course is concerned. And then 1607 is the first permanent English settlement. So a lot of period one is the Spanish. Really, those of you that were in world history last year, maybe you took AP Euro, um, AP World, you know that, that it's actually the Spanish that are going to be doing this early colonizing. Um, and to some extent, we see the Portuguese as well, a little bit of the Dutch, French, British are the last ones to really start setting up permanent settlements. So think about that. We're going to go through that together. Um, just another shout out to the AP Gilder Lerman APUSH website. This is fabulous. Um, now, I'm going to show you here. Hopefully, it'll be working. Um, bring your shared window to Why is my screen sharing paused? Ooh, I'm getting a weird here. Resume share. Seems being weird. All right, there we go. Now it's as you can see it. So this, I couldn't get this to work last week. I think it was my internet's fault, um, but this is a fabulous resource. And what Gilder Lerman has done is put each period gets its own page. So I always direct my students to this when we start reviewing just general things for the whole course. Um, I love that each period gets, first of all, they explain very clearly the key concepts and the period right here. So you can see these are the main focus. So your teachers are all working on this right now. This is what guides us when we are teaching you. These are the main things we are trying to make sure you understand. The timeline is fabulous as well. And this is a great way to review. And so what we'll sometimes do with my students is I'll have them click through the timeline and pick, you know, I'll say, all right, I want you to pick the most, what you think are the seven most significant events from period one. And I want you then to argue it out, you know, because I tend to find that AP students like to argue. Uh, we typically are, you know, we get very strong beliefs and we like to share those. And so this is a great exercise for you to start weighing what is the most significant and why really building those historical arguments that are so important for our essays. So you can click through. And what I also love about this is that Gilder Lerman has embedded in here actual historians talking to you in small manageable bits about why this particular topic is important. So this is a great resource, can't emphasize it enough. Um, and then down at the bottom, and I'll pull some of these in, down at the bottom you could see some documents. These are great to practice. We'll take a look at one of them today, but this is another thing that you could do on your own just to kind of get a gauge of what's happening in this period and also practice those skills of happy, the historical analysis, the audience, the point of view, the perspective, um, and maybe how you could tie that into an argument. So shout out to that website, it's great stuff. If you have not yet bookmarked it, you'll wanna bookmark that because it's gonna be a really great home base for you as you go through this whole course. Okay, so we sort of talked about why period one starts in 1491. Um, and this is, I think, the important thing that I always try to emphasize with my students is that we need to understand that North America and Central and South America are inhabited by millions of people, millions of people, each with their own diverse set of beliefs each with their own cultures, right? Each with their own different sets of norms and values. And, and we wanna make sure we recognize the complexity of this hemisphere. So we wanna start there and try to understand that before we dive in and see what happens next. So one thing that I always like to do, um, this is a pretty cool resource just to, just to kind of play around with and just it's a different way to think about the land that you're on right now. So I know they're gonna put this website in the chat, but here you can see, let me resume my sharing here. Okay. And this is, it says here, this is not completely extensive, right? Does not represent or intend to represent official or legal boundaries, but it is kind of cool to see the land that you are on right now. So where I teach, I'm going to put my zip code 44116. That is Rocky River, Ohio, right there. 
Let's click on that. And my students clicked on this in class and said, oh, we're in the land of the Erie, right? And you can even learn more about the particular group that was on the land that you are on right now. It's just something to think about. It's just a different way, especially as we're thinking about Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, um, and the way that we the way that we remember where we are, the way we think about where we are. That's a big part of period one. So I just thought I'd share that with you. It's kind of a cool resource to check out and just a different way to think about the land you're on right this very second. So, um, oh, put it in the chat. Anybody want to share where you are? I, I told you I'm in Erie country. Let's see where we are here. There we go, Potawatomi. You're on four lands. Oh, wow, yeah, you'll notice that. That sometimes they overlap. Woodland Hills, California. Piscataway, I might be saying that wrong too. Mohican, Pueblo. Yeah, awesome. We got a wide variety here. Hopewell, Peoria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just kind of a cool, like again, another way to think about who was here before us, which is I think to me, one of the fascinating parts of history is who walked this land before we got here, right? What is their story? That's what we're trying to figure out. That's what we're trying to figure out. So thank you for sharing there. Um, move this out of the, get my chat going here. Okay, so period one, like I mentioned before, is quite a bit of world history, especially regarding Spain and Portugal's interactions with indigenous people. Um, and then later on also with people that they will be enslaving as well. And we need to take a look at that with period one and talk about the role that um, enslavement will play and migration, forced migration and human trafficking will play in period one. That's another important thing to look at. So, um, by studying indigenous peoples, we get a more accurate picture of this continent, both before and after 1491. So I put here a great resource to check out. And I honestly didn't realize all the resources they had before I started digging around here, but the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian has some virtual field trips that look really awesome. And they have some really great programming. Um, so, you know, I definitely am gonna look into that. Um, to give my students some kind of, I mean, they'll have actual scholars be able to walk you through virtual field trips based on different topics. And it's a wide range of topics, not just from period one, but all the way through the 1800s and even today. So great things on that website, um, wonderful options there to check out. Okay, so why is Columbus's voyage so significant? Because like I said, he is certainly not the first explorer to come from away and land in this hemisphere. Um, but I think why he's going to be so significant is he will start this massive wave of migration from 1492 on that will shape the course of world history and of course of US history as well. So I put there, trying to move my face out of the way, here we go, a major concept to understand the Columbian exchange. And you better believe that is one of the things that the national test tends to ask about. It might be in a chart form. It might be an excerpt from a historian, which we're gonna practice with. Um, you wanna make sure you know the significance of this ongoing event. Remember, this is one of those things in US history, similar in world, where the people living in that moment did not necessarily know they were in the middle of this thing, right? It's not like people woke up and were like, oh, today is day 391 of the Columbian exchange. Like, these are terms that are given later on to describe something that has happened. So that's what we talk about eras, the industrial revolution. I said, that's another one. We say people don't just wake up on January 1st, I don't know, 1790 in England and go, I think it's gonna, let's start the industrial revolution. So don't get too hung up on specific dates. Um, this is where you wanna think eras, you wanna think cause and effect. And that's a great way to frame the, the um, Columbian exchange. So I just put this picture here. I thought this was interesting. It's in the Capitol Rotunda today, as in, you know, our capital here in Washington, DC. So Columbus is definitely seen as being a paramount part of the founding of the United States. And um, of course there's definitely a lot of controversy and conversations surrounding that, that we even saw come up this week about what do we say about Columbus and versus the indigenous people who were already here. So that's a great way to look at period one and really dig into the resources and try to understand again, perspective. So let's talk about the Columbian exchange. Okay, so I have this image here, it's kind of fuzzy, it's not the greatest, um, and it's also not comprehensive. This is not the only stuff that went from the new world to old world. I don't even like to use those terms. I like to use the hemispheres 
um, because again, nothing about this world over here was new to the millions of people that had inhabited it for hundreds of years. So um, you want to recognize it's new from the European perspective only. The people here, of course, this was their world. So when we talk about what goes across, there are, of course, people who are going to go across, some voluntarily and some enslaved with the Middle Passage. That's a big part of the Colombian exchange and this effects of these interactions. And we need to recognize that. There are going to be ideas, uh, most notably Christianity, that will come from Europe to this hemisphere and, and in some ways be forced upon the people here, right? Um, and we will see also there are different foods, different goods, raw materials. So you wanna be able to give some examples of that and then also think to get that why, that unicorn point, that magical point, you wanna show you understand why it matters. Okay, you wanna show why it matters. I don't not know what is happening here. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. Um, I don't know what just happened. <laughs> my computer just, hold on folks. My computer just went haywire. Um, I think. Uh, uh, uh. Hi, it's Cassidy. I just lost half my screen. I'm not sure why. Um, yeah, it was weird. It like zoomed in and got big for a second, but now you're on the, uh, the next slide. So it looks fine. Okay. Okay, I'm trying to close out of what just took over my screen. There we go, okay. Okay, I'm sorry, folks. Let me go back. I am now screen sharing, but I wanna go back, I wasn't done. Okay, here we go, sorry about that. Um, so from the Gilder Lehrman vaults, this is again on that webpage that I directed you to before, and you could see Columbus reports on his first voyage. And this is a great document to look at. Um, geez, I'm trying to click on this and it's not, Taking me there. There we go. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay. So Columbus reports on his first voyage in 1493. And this is one now, again, when we're talking about period one, I think we really have to recognize perspective. And we have a great little interview here from Beth Huffer, who curates books and manuscripts for Gilda Lerman. Um, you can check that out. She kind of talks a little bit about the document. And this is one of the hundreds of documents that Gilda Lerman has in their vaults. Um, this is obviously from Columbus's perspective, right? So in this perspective, and this is what you wanna think about with these documents, whose voice is here, whose voice is not here? Whether it's an image, same thing. Whose voice is in that image? What's left out of that image? So when we're looking at this particular document, which by the way, is written in Spanish, but the, the one that Gilder Lerman has is Latin. Um, highly doubt many of us in this room are fluent in Latin. I know that I am not. So you would always get an excerpt translated for you. But I think when we talk about what's in here and how could we make some kinds of arguments, the Latin printing of this letter, you can see, I discovered many islands inhabited by numerous people. I took possession of all of them for a most fortunate king by making public proclamation and unfurling his standard. No one making any resistance, Columbus wrote. Okay. Let's keep going. Columbus's letter also provides observations of the native people's culture and lack of weapons, noting that they are destitute of arms, which, which are entirely unknown to them and for which they're not adapted, not on account of any bodily deformity, for they are well-made, but because they are timid and full of terror. Writing that the natives are fearful and timid, guileless and honest, Columbus declares the land could easily be conquered by Spain and the natives, quote, might become Christians and inclined to love our king and queen and princes and all the royal people of Spain, all the people of Spain. So there's a lot to unpack here, isn't there? There's a lot of assumptions being made. Um, and how could we use this to build an argument? So I think a great way to look at this document would be to talk about motivation, motivation for settlement. You can see some of the assumptions being made about indigenous peoples that oh, hey, this'll be easy, right? Like they don't even have weapons. Um, and this is going to be driving not just Columbus's expedition, but the expeditions that come next. So think about if you get a really early document, say in a multiple choice stimulus-based question, think about how you can connect that to later time periods as well. That's a great way to look at what's happening with these. All right, a lot of people asking about encomienda or saying they feel nervous about it. Let's do a quick review because hopefully your teacher has gotten to encomienda here. Drop it in the chat for me. What is the encomienda system? This is another one that comes up a lot on the national tests. Let's see, labor system created by the Spanish enslaving Native Americans. Bingo, yep, a labor system. Some of you mentioning slavery. 
teacher hasn't gotten to it yet. Okay, hopefully they will soon. That's all right, that's all right. We've got us, they promised to convert them. Mm -hmm. Settlers were justified for forced labor in exchange for quote, Christianizing the natives, yep. So the idea of conversion is part of this, that it's almost as if it's a justification, right? Just if I look like some of you using that word too. Mm -hmm. Justification for enslaving indigenous peoples. That's a big part of it. It's a, it's a social hierarchy that we're gonna see the Spanish really use in their colonies here in this hemisphere. So there we go. So a strict racial hierarchy in the Spanish colonies. Um, now, one thing, and the, I know that we talked about this briefly last time, um, we looked at a question about the Spanish and the English, but one thing that we will see the Spanish colonies definitely had more tolerance for intermarriage than the British colonies did. So that's kind of a key difference that we would point out there um, that has been asked before in a short answer question. And I know that threw some of my students off. They were like, wait, what was the difference? And that is gonna be one of the main differences between what happens in the eventual British colonies and what's happening in Central and South America um, and just the diversity that we're gonna see there. So let's take a look. What tends to happen with period one is remember period one is not, um, not going to be your DBQ. We can rule that out. DBQ will be periods three through eight. And so here we have, I'm trying to move my toolbar out of the way. Sorry, friends, um, I don't know that I can. I hope you, I hope you guys, ooh, 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 sorry. I hope you guys don't see my toolbar because it's cutting off the first sentence. Um, but what we have here are, this is what you might see with a stimulus-based multiple choice or even a short answer option. So one of your short answer options could come from period one. We have two different historians, or in this case, technically three different historians, the second one is co-authored, that are talking about the Columbian exchange and the changes. So let's take a look at these. And then in the next question, the next slide, I wanna give you some examples of questions that might be asked. So the first one, the Columbian connection had a devastating effect on indigenous human societies of the Americas. New disease vectors suddenly introduced into the vulnerable populations of the new world began a sequence of horrific pandemics. Rapidly spreading infectious disease devastated indigenous peoples of the new world. It thinned their numbers, destroyed their institutions, and broke the resistance to Spanish aggression. Demographic recovery after major pandemics was hindered by reduced fertility, stillbirths, and other physical effects, as well as by cultural depression, hopelessness, and malaise resulting from the Spanish colonial domination. So when Richards is writing this in The Unended Frontier, I want you to think about, anytime you have a passage from a historian like this, think about what is the point of that? What is he trying to tell us here, okay? He's saying something about what this Colombian exchange is doing to indigenous peoples. Think about that for a second. Let's look at the second perspective. The new world provided soils that were very suitable for the cultivation of the variety of old world products. The increased supply lowered the prices of these products significantly, making them affordable to the general population for the first time in history. The production of these products also resulted in large inflows of profits back to Europe, which some have argued fueled the industrial revolution and the rise of Europe. The old world gained access to new crops that were widely adopted. The improvement in agricultural productivity had significant effects on the historic population growth and urbanization. So Nunn and Cannon there are writing in 2010, this is another outcome of the Columbian Exchange. Two very different perspectives, right, that you're getting here. So what would you get on the national test? You might get a short answer. You might get a short answer that says something like this. Um, briefly explain A, B, and C. So A says, what is one his specific historical difference between Richards and Nunn's and Cannon's interpretations? Okay, so one specific historical difference. So if we go back here, we're gonna see that the first one is really talking about the pandemic of this, right? And what that does, um, as we are unfortunately seeing right now, pandemics weaken societies, right? There's fear, there's uncertainty, there's instability. This, he's arguing, is what leads to the devastation and the conquering. The second one is talking more about economics and how things change in new goods. It's a different take, isn't it? So the second one you would say, that one is focused more on the outcome of what is going back home the, to the old world, right? New foods and how that's gonna change society there. So then your B on this says, 
briefly explain how one specific historical event or development not explicitly mentioned, so you can't just lift something from that, could be used to support Richard's the first interpretation. Let's go back to it and look. Okay, so when I see this one, what immediately comes to my mind is the Aztecs. Tenochtitlan has a massive outbreak of smallpox. Um, and this is what I would say Richards would use that as an example to back this up, that it's not necessarily because Cortez was so much more brilliant as a leader that he's able to come in and conquer that great city and that empire. It's he had a lot of help from the instability and the massive deaths that are happening related to the smallpox epidemic. So that would be a good specific that you could pull in for that one. C, briefly explain how one specific historical event or development not explicitly mentioned in the excerpt could be used to support second interpretation. So this one, I feel like, oops, wrong one there. This one, I almost have to go a little into period two for this because this is talking about how it's gonna influence the industrial revolution. And we're gonna see that boom in food. So to get a specific, you could talk about, I would pull in maize cultivation, how that is gonna come back to the quote unquote old world. You can put on other things like potatoes and tomatoes, some of these goods that are gonna come back that will then lead to a population boom that we see in periods two and three, which are gonna take us down that road to the industrial revolution. So they will expect you to be able to connect to periods like that, okay? If you get a specific amount of years in your short answer question, you really gotta stay in those years. But this one is really kind of asking you to make connections. So don't be afraid to make those connections to later periods, okay? All right, quick brain dump. Here's another topic that comes up a lot on the national test. Um, often you get an excerpt from him, Bartolome de las Casas. What do you know about him? What do you remember about him? Let's see what we got. Let me look in the chat. Um, he was an explorer? Not really, no, good guess. Oh, I see somebody got it and just went away before I could see it. He was a sympathizer with the native Spanish priest. Yep, criticizing encomienda. Yes, there you go. There you go. Okay, excellent, excellent, excellent. So. Bartolome de las Casas, I think why we tend to see him often used on the national exam is because he is one of the rare written records that we do have of a Spaniard calling out the Spanish empire and saying, this is not okay, right? And criticizing some of the things that were happening to the indigenous populations. So that is a great way to look at him in a frame of reference. Um, and because there, again, there's not as many access to printed material, and especially not from this point of view um, in period one. I think that's why it tends to come up. So uh, let's take a look. We're gonna go to the Gilder Lerman vault for this one. I've got Bartolome de las Casas debates the subjugation of the Indians in 1550. So you wanna think about how could you use this document in a stimulus-based multiple choice question or perhaps in a short answer. That's often how we see it on the exam. So let's take you to the vault and here we go. Okay. So you can see here, let me move my face out of the way. All right, this tract, a summary of the debate concerning the subjugation of Indians has the arguments of De Las Casas, okay? It gives you a little background on that. It talks about his efforts to end encomienda. So he's really criticizing that. He's really criticizing that. Citing the Bible and canon law, Las Casas responded, all the world is human. Facts, right? Um, so we can see, that he has been called the father of anti-imperialism and anti-racism here. Um, so he is trying to kind of stand up in some way and say, what is happening is not okay. This is not right. So that is a really good point to note. So you would, you would often get a passage from De Las Casas. And like I said, how do we tend to see him used on the national test? We tend to see him used in either a stimulus-based multiple choice question, which would then give you something he wrote and ask you probably three questions about it. Um, one of those questions often asking you to connect to another time period and, and use, or you would get him in a short answer question. So that is how we typically see his words used. Um, but again, I just, I can't say this enough. We wanna make sure we're recognizing that this is still just one person and it still is a Spanish perspective. So there are gonna be assumptions in there, right? There's gonna be historical context in there. We want to try as much as we can to understand the perspective of people that were there. And it's hard in period one because folks, a lot of that stuff got destroyed by the Spanish, didn't it? A lot of the documents, a lot of the artifacts just got destroyed or if they were gold, they got melted down. 
um, and sent back to, to Spain. So it's tough with period one, but seek that out, okay? What else? No, period one is an international place with a lot of competition for goods, for resources, for control. So again, with period one, we typically see the Spanish, but as we get towards the end, we're gonna see the French and the British as well. St. Augustine is a great example. I love that city, by the way, if anybody out there is from St. Augustine, beautiful city, tons of history. Um, this was the first permanent Spanish settlement in this hemisphere or in what's now the United States, I should say, not in this hemisphere, it was now the United States. Although Florida, of course, is not a state until much later. So this is where the English and the Florida historians, the, the Virginian Florida historians like to argue over who's more significant. But St. Augustine will be fought over by the French and the English and the Spanish. So Sir Francis Drake attacks it, right? We'll see the French take it. There's actually a really cool fort there that you could visit. And they tell you that this was fought over so many times. And so another thing we need to make sure we understand is the middle passage is going to start during period one, continue all the way through the next few periods and have effects that we still feel well into the 20th and 21st century, right? That we are still dealing with the after effects of this. So think about how that's shaping both that moment, people coming from Africa, being forced against their will, transported human trafficked into this hemisphere. How does that shape places in the Caribbean, Central and South America, how does that shape eventually the United States? So 1619 is gonna be period two. So in period one, we're looking at more, how is this happening in Central and South America? Okay, but it's gonna, it's not gonna stay in one period. We wanna make sure we recognize that. And how did enslaved people, indigenous and African resist? And I think that's an important point to note. And this is, this is harder to seek out, right? Because there's been a, a lot of these records are not there anymore. Um, and there's a reason for that. And it's the Spanish very much tried to stop those records from existing when the Spanish were controlling. So think about that. Another thing with period one, remember that things happening in Europe are going to affect things over here. So say the Spanish Armada 1588, right? is going to affect the power balance over here. And the Spanish and the British are going to be not just competing at home, but competing in this hemisphere as well. And so those are kind of important parts of period one. It's a lot of world history. Folks, it's a lot of world history, but it is really important. I can't say this enough to recognize that this quote unquote new world was not new for the millions of people that lived here. And there's diverse patterns of their own cultures and each has a story to tell. And it's our job as historians to try to seek out those stories. So this is another one coming from the Gilder Lerman Vault, Sekotan and Algonquin Village in present day North Carolina. And what can we, if you've got this image, what can we say about that, right? What can we say? I see a lot of structure, right? I see agriculture. I see a thriving city here. And so think about how that represents one particular spot, one tiny place in this whole continent. And I heard a great, I cannot, I meant to look up who it was, but I went to the National Council on History Education Conference several years ago in St. Augustine. Um, heard a really fascinating historian who specializes in this time period. He said, you know, it's a really convenient narrative for historians to say that Europeans came over, um, coughed three times, and all the native and indigenous people died. He's like, because when we say that, then you can write them out of the story. And I was like, oh, right? We want to recognize the devastation that these pandemics brought. But we also want to recognize the resistance, the efforts of indigenous people to um, create something out of that and try to maintain their culture. Um, and we don't want to just write them out of the story. And so really, again, I'm going to challenge you, not just in period one, but in all of these periods, to keep thinking about that and avoid what I call the, the oversimplification, the overgeneralizations, the convenient narrative. If something is so set in stone and it's most, history is never that simple, friends. So history is never that simple. It is never all of this happened here and all of this didn't, right? You wanna look for those gray areas. You wanna seek out the voices that are unheard, especially in period one. So I use the American pageant um, by David Kennedy in my classes. It's a very commonly used A push book. Probably some of you out there have that book. And the very end of the first chapter talks about the black legend and this idea that all the Europeans came over and again, coughed three times, all the natives died. That was it, that was the end. Um, be careful with that. Be careful with that because that then 
will justify the idea that you don't need to look for the indigenous people story. And so it's rarely that simple. So be careful with these overgeneralizations, especially in period one, and just beware of what I call the convenient narrative um, that just makes it very easy to be like, check that box and move on, right? That's not what history is. So really seek out the voices that tend to get um, either pushed aside or unheard. I think that's an important way to look at period one. All right, how do we usually see it on the exam? Remember, it's about 5% of the course and roughly 5% of the exam. So your teachers um, are instructed by the college board not to spend more than 5% of the course on period one. So that's what we do, right? We don't spend the whole class on period one, despite the fact that there's some fascinating things happening in there. Period one, we can guarantee will not be one of your DBQ options. Rule that out, check that there. So how will we see it? Well, we're gonna see probably one set of stimulus-based multiple choice questions, three to four, right? You'll get some kind of a stimulus, might be like what we saw before, um, dueling historians, and then you have questions about it. Could be a picture like that image of that Sekwetan, um, the village, the Algonquin village, and then you have a few questions about that. Could also be one of your short answer options or one of your LEQ options. And remember the short answer options and the LEQ, you're gonna have one short answer that's for sure one of the early periods. You're gonna have one LEQ option that is periods one through four. Um, so, I'm sorry, one through three. So it could be one of those, but not necessarily. So again, don't stress too much about period one, um, but we still wanna make sure we understand it because of course we're setting up the rest of US history here and there are some significant things. Here comes a poll. What do you think is the most significant topic in period one? Here's your options, okay? What do you think is gonna shape the most of what comes next? I'm watching them come in here. Ooh, it's actually pretty close, but one's pulling away a little bit. Ooh, we're really close in our second and third place. All right, final vote. I'm gonna, I'm gonna end the poll and share it with you. There it is. The Colombian exchange gets the most votes, but look at that second and third place it was like neck and neck for a while. Middle passage in Encomienda and international tensions that came to this hemisphere. Those are both really significant. No disrespect to Bartolome de las Casas with the maps. I think those are important as well, but I think I would agree that those first three you picked are probably the ones that we see the most in period one asked on the national test. Okay, excellent. All right, so I'm trying to keep an eye on my time here. I know we've got, oh, I almost timed this perfectly. Look at that, what questions do we have? We've got about 15, 16 minutes here. I know um, Cassidy has been manning the Q&A. So now let's, let's do it, give me some questions. What do we got? All right, we've got some good ones in here and please feel free to post more y'all. Um, Anna had a good question. How long did the ships take to get from America to England? Wouldn't the produce expire? Oh, that is a good question. Um, yeah, and this is why uh, that it's more transportation in a lot of ways of seeds that'll actually be the things that are transported. Um, not, you're right, because it's about four to six weeks, depending on weather, um, depending, of course, on, on how good your tools are and all that kind of stuff. So I think seeds, as far as like tomatoes are concerned, Tomatoes aren't going to be very good in four to six weeks, but the seeds are going to be more of what gets transported. That is a great question. Got it. All right, cool. Thank you so much. Um, Nicole had a great question too. Can we refer to books like Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States on the exam? You can refer to outside historians, sure. Um, if you remember them, of course, that's the key. But um, that would be something you could pull into perhaps a DBQ as the outside information. You could do that. Um, just make sure, of course, that you're using reputable sources then that are, you know, of course, with based in primary source content. But yeah, yeah. If you remember it, that's the key. I would I would think more about specific facts and details that you remember you do not need to like memorize historians quotes and try to put those on there. Don't worry about that. But yeah, I mean, if you have that background knowledge and you're able to bring that in. Sure. Mm -hmm. Rocking. All right. Um, Marcina has a good question. What should we focus on? Columbia's voyage, eras, and what other stuff should they focus on? Um, focus on Columbus's voyage? Okay. Yeah. Yes, okay. 
So typically we don't see much asked about like the specific explorers. Like I remember, gosh, in fourth grade, I had to memorize all the explorers like Cortez and Pizarro and Magellan and where did they go? That's not typically what we see here. Again, we're, we're seeing more cause and effect. So um, with Columbus, I would know that, of course, as we said, he is not the first European to come to this hemisphere. He does start a wave of exploration. Um, and this is also kind of a timing issue. When you look at when he's coming, you know that we're kind of on the cusp of the scientific revolution in Europe. They're starting to make some discoveries and some technologies that makes it easier for them to sail. Um, we're also seeing that the monarchies in Europe are competing and Columbus, like many of these explorers, were for hire and for sale and they would hire themselves out. So I would understand kind of that aspect of it as well. But again, for period one on the national exam, you're gonna see more de las Casas talking about the effects. You're gonna see more a chart or a graph or maybe historian's interpretation of the Colombian exchange and thinking about the causes and effects of those things. That's how I would focus on period one. So don't get too hung up on the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria, right? Like we, we don't need to worry about that. You're not gonna see a question like that. All right, cool. Um, so happy to see Catherine uh, chiming into the chat with the question, recognize her from summer. In what ways did native people resist? Excellent question. So, and again, with period one, I always have a hard time finding things in period one because the Spanish did a pretty good job of making sure those records were eliminated. So um, I would know that indigenous peoples and later enslaved peoples, whether they were indigenous or African, um, will resist in various ways. There will be some uprisings for sure. Um, as we get into period two, we'll get some more specific examples. So in period two, we can talk specifically about the Puebla revolt, otherwise known as Pope's rebellion. That's a great example for period two. Um, period two is 1607 to 1754. It's a little bit more documentation there that, that I tend to see on the national exam. Um, the Stono rebellion is another good example. Again, that's late period two, but that's where we know that enslaved people and indigenous people were trying to resist as much as they could. Um, we also have Sarah, I lost your sound. Oh, there we go. You're back. Okay. Um, that indigenous people can resist in other ways besides just rebelling, right? So we want to recognize that. Um, and same thing with enslaved people of African descent, that just the very fact that they were marrying is a form of resistance because that was not allowed, right? Um, working slowly purposefully is a form of resistance. And so um, anything that they could do to mess with the system and bring back some control is gonna be a form of resistance. So it's not always these outward rebellions. We wanna recognize the everyday efforts of an enslaved people to um, resist in various ways. So yeah, I would say we're gonna get more specifics in period two, which we'll talk about next week, but Pope's rebellion and the Stoner rebellion are two that come to mind. Awesome, thanks. Got a couple questions in here about encomienda. Um, one quick one, how long did the encomienda system last? Oh boy, that's a great question. Um, honestly, I would have to look up the specific years. I know that it was throughout most of the 1500s and 1600s as well. Um, I don't know when the Spanish officially abandoned Encomienda. I would have to look that up. Um, so again, and you're not gonna get a question like that. You'll just get a question on what did the Encomienda system, how was it structured and what were some of the effects? So um, yeah, I really don't know. You stumped me. No worries. Um, <laughs> to continue the discussion on that though, um, Geraldine had an interesting question. Could it be argued that the encomienda system served as a model for the English when they settled? I think there's a lot of things that the Spanish are gonna do that the English will incorporate and we will see that. Um, obviously the biggest difference is that we will see the British colonies not encouraging intermarriage between um, the different races. They will, that is something that they will frown upon greatly and eventually ban. But we will see the Barbados slave code um, by the British colony of Barbados. And oof, I gotta look up the year. I wanna say 1681, don't quote me on that. Um, that, will, that was based heavily on what the Spanish were doing. And then that became incorporated in the Carolina colony, which at this point is just one big colony um, that hadn't split in the North and South yet. So yeah, I think absolutely it does serve as sort of a model for what the British will eventually incorporate. Interesting. Okay, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, here's an interesting one. Why did the Spanish destroy the documents in the first place? 
were they trying to cover something that they didn't want the world to know? Um, short answer, yes. <laughs> and to be fair to Spain, they are certainly not the only ones. Um, we will see this happen. I was just teaching about the Plains Native Americans in my um, academic level US history. We talked about the Sand Creek Massacre. Um, as another example where suddenly the details get fuzzy, right? And we don't often know exactly what happened, um, but we do know that there was a problem and there are many people killed. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes we do tend to see that happen, an effort to um, play it down or just conveniently not tell all the details to the story. So yeah, that's the short answer. And they're not, not to totally blame Spain for that. They are certainly not the only country or only time period where we will see that happen. Cool. Um, we do have a few questions in here that I just want to make sure we allow time for that aren't specifically content related, but more about the exam generally. I know we touched on some of this last week, but since we have a lot of newcomers this week, yeah. we'll throw out a few to you here. How important is citing dates on the exam as evidence? Could they just oh. cite events and names? Events and names are all you need. So you don't need dates. Dates are like some icing on the cake if you have them. But I, I was saying in the last week, um, if you missed last week, dates help you keep things in order for cause and effect. So you wanna think the test is much more measuring cause and effect. If you know that Jamestown is settled in 1607, then you know, and if you know that the reformation really starts around 1517, you know that one of those things is more likely an effect of the other, right? So um, don't feel like you have to spit out dates. This isn't date salad. You're not just being like date vomit all over your page, but dates can help you keep things in order, which will help you with the cause and effect, which is really what they want to see you do. They want to see you make connections and they want to see you recognize that some things happen first and then some things happen later. So yeah, hopefully that makes you feel a little better about that. Got it. Date salad sounds delicious. Salad. Um, <laughs> uh, Logan had a good one. Are we allowed to use quotes from sources on the DBQ? Um, he said he got some conflicting information from his teacher on this, so he's curious what you have to say. Okay, so we did talk about this a little bit last period, uh, or last, not last period, I'm not in school right now, um, last week. So the official rubric does not say that you need to use quotes, which boggles my mind. Be and here's why, because the, also on the rubric is that the, what I call the unicorn point, which wants deep analysis. So to me, the easiest way to show deep analysis on a document-based question is to quote the document and explain it, right? And analyze it. So I do teach my students to incorporate quotes. Um, I, that's something that I just feel strongly about and helps them get that edge. But if your teacher is telling you you don't need quotes and you could just reference, I believe that is still okay based on the rubric. Uh, that's something that has changed within the past few years. So again, I would go with the way that your teacher is teaching you on this. Um, the date, the quotes though, I just like, I just think they're, I just think it's, it's another way to show that deeper level of analysis. So I, I say it can't hurt, but also recognizing that time is of the essence. You only have 60 minutes. So, you know, that's important too. But yeah, I, I tell my students to pull in some quotes and it doesn't have to be long. It can even be just a little phrase, you know, but just something that shows you're able to analyze that document and make that connection. Got it. Thanks so much. Um, we also have a couple of questions in here just about like your tips for studying and doing well on the exam. I thought what you had to say last week was great. If you want to expand on that, that would be awesome. Sure. So, um, yeah, and, and I know that they're, they're working on the, um, the recording from last week too. So if you weren't here, we did talk about some, some little hacks, but I did say the very fact that you are here right now shows that you are doing the right thing. Um, a push is very much a marathon and not a sprint. And so I talk a lot about, I'm actually, I, I like to run a lot. So maybe cross country people out there, you, you know these metaphors as well, but you don't wanna just go out and run a marathon right now. Like you could probably do it. You'd have to walk a lot, right? You'd be hobbling at the end. It wouldn't be a fun experience for anybody. So you gotta build up to it. You wanna practice. You wanna start building your base. You wanna spend a little time every day, ideally, to get ready for that big event. So the more that you can keep up with the reading, um, and I know a lot of my students roll my eyes at this, but it's so funny, all my former students, who come back to say hi, or I have this, this board in my room I call the wall of fives. So they come and they put their name on the board and they always, like one girl just came this week to sign and she goes, 
make sure you read guys. No, for real, read, you know, <laughs> and reading your book is going to be really important because it helps you build your base. It's your base mileage. It's going to get that knowledge and that context in your brain. And that's one of the most important things you can do. The second thing you can do is practicing with these documents. So going again to the Gilder Learning website, pulling up a period, scrolling through the timeline, jotting down what you think are maybe the seven to 10 most important things, um, or scrolling to the bottom and looking at those documents and practice happying the documents. You know, like pull up a document, give yourself five or 10 minutes and say, all right, what's the historical context here? Or what's the point of view of this person? Just that little stuff that's going to keep your brain fresh and, and get you really good at being able to use a document as a clue to the story. That's going to be another thing. Um, another one of my favorite hacks for actual test day that I mentioned last week, but I think this is such a good one and I'm stealing it from another teacher is get an old school analog watch. Like one that, you know, with like the hands on it um, that doesn't be for anything. Find one, I don't know, find your grandparents probably have one somewhere. There's some, probably a watch somewhere and just set it to noon. Every section you set it to noon, even though it's not noon. My students take this test at 7.45, I think all of us do, right? You set it to noon, you know on the multiple choice I have 55 minutes. When that watch gets to 55, you know you're done. Then you reset it to noon. You know you have 40 minutes for a short answer. Okay, now I'm watching for 40 minutes because my students take a test in a big gym and there's one tiny clock on the wall. And of course you're starting at like a weird time, like 7.49. And it's harder to keep track of things. So that's a simple little hack that I love to just keep an eye on your pace. So yes, that's your homework between now and May. Find a watch somehow, some way. Get your hands on an old school watch because I think that's a great hack. Love it. Um, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Um, this is a great one from Melanie. Uh, were there more people in Spain that believed that Native Americans were treated unjustly other than Bartolome de las Casas? I am sure that there were. Um, I am sure that also that there were a lot of people in Spain that probably didn't know exactly what was going on as well, just because we have to remember this isn't the era where there's Twitter um, and viral videos. So it was uh, easier to keep control on the situation, especially in a monarchical system. So, um, but yeah, that's the one thing that, and I use this with Abigail Adams, remember the ladies letter when we get to period three. When we have a De Las Casas, we have an Abigail Adams who are saying, hey, I disagree with what's happening and it's wrong. We know that they're not the only person out there, right? But these people had a certain amount of privilege because of their position that they were able to write that down. So. We know that there are gonna be other people feeling that way who maybe either don't have the privilege to be able to get it recorded um, or just didn't have the ability to get their voice heard. So yeah, I would say he is not the only one I'm sure that recognized what was happening was, was not right. Um, but he is one of the few written records that we have that recognized it was not right. Got it, okay. Um, in exchange for their labor, what, if anything, would the Spaniards give the natives? So really, I mean, just like, and this is kind of what we see with enslavement, right? Um, and we'll see these justifications attempts coming from the owners of humans when they say things like, well, it's fine because I'm giving them food and giving them a place to live, right? And sometimes I even let them have Sunday off. So you're going to see some creative ways to kind of um, justify what's happening. Um, also, we have to remember that very much in this case, they did not view indigenous people or enslaved Africans as human. Um, and so they really did think there's this paternalistic view that we're doing them a favor, right? You know, like we're, we're this is what's best for them. So you'll see that justification um, quite a bit as well, whether it's here in period one or whether it's later um, in the antebellum South, we'll hear that, that argument as well. Got it. Mm -hmm. um, just one more. Uh, what, if any, were some of the biggest native alliances in this time? Oh boy, that's a big question. I feel like that needs more than just a few minutes, but um, one that tends to come up, and again, I'm getting a little bit more into period two, um, but definitely the Iroquois Confederacy is one that tends to come up. Um, and you know, this is one that actually had a written constitution, which is interesting to look at the constitution that they had and, and the influence even you could see upon later constitutions, including our own. So the Iroquois Confederacy is a big one. Um, the Pueblo is gonna be another one that will come up again. I'm getting more into period two, um, very different part of the country, but that will be another one that we'll see. And then of course, later as we get into period four, we're gonna talk a lot about um, the Seminole in Florida. Um, you'll hear a lot about the, the Cherokee, of course, is gonna be another one that comes up. 
And then as we get into period six, we're going to talk more. The one that tends to come up when we talk about the plains are the Sioux, the Nez Perce, and the Cheyenne. So there's quite a few based on place and time. I guess we'd have to be more specific. And I, I feel like I'm not even doing it justice right now because I don't want to oversimplify too much, but those are, those are where we're headed. That's a great question. I need another hour for that. <laughs> All right, we'll try to, we'll try to figure that out next time. Um, there are so many good questions in the Q and A. So I'm thinking maybe we'll talk internally about if there's some way that maybe we can answer these and share unanswered questions um, on the class resource page just as um, I'm loving all the activity going on here, but it is one o'clock and I want to be mindful of everyone's time. So thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks everyone. It was great to spend Saturday with you. I will see you all um, virtually next week. Same time, same place. Awesome. All right. Have a good one. Stay tuned for the exit quiz, everyone. Have a good Bye. one. Bye.